The following is part of the teaching ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel in Barrie, Ontario. We believe firmly in proclaiming the Word of God without apology. For more information about our church, visit our website at harvestberry.ca or email us at info at harvestberry.ca. We trust that this message will challenge and transform you. All right, ready to get to some preaching? Sit down if you're not ready. If you're, if you're ready for some preaching, we'll get to some preaching. First, First Samuel chapter one. Um, First Samuel chapter one. We are looking at the life of, of Hannah, as Mike mentioned earlier. And I want to ask you this question uh, as we get going. And we just had a little moment of excitement right there. But uh, what what really what really gets you going? What what fires you up? What what revs your engine? What do you get excited about? What are you, and this is the word for the day, what are you fervent about? And when you start to think about the things that really kind of get us fired up, um, sports is like a big one for us. And, and sometimes it's the, uh, you know, getting our kids involved in sports and we put so much money and time and effort into that. Uh, maybe it's a sport we participate in. Maybe it's our favorite professional team and, and we cheer them on and buy their gear and, and we go nuts during playoffs. Uh, Toronto fans wouldn't know anything about that, but I'll, I'll, explain, I'll explain playoffs to you sometime. Uh, it, it was so exciting. We get so worked up. Or maybe it's a concert that you're into. And uh, maybe it's a certain artist or performer that you're really excited about. A new album's coming out, a new download, or, or you're going to their concert and you're so excited about it. And when you go to that concert, you're going to act like a mental person. You're going to be just like crazy for it. Uh, maybe you're excited instead for a favorite TV show. I can't miss it. I got to PVR it. I got to make sure I see every episode and I'll buy the box set when it comes out or some movie that you just can't wait to come and you'll be there as soon as it premieres. Uh, maybe it's food that gets you going. How many people here like food? Just like, you don't just eat it. I mean, you like food, right? And you, you, uh, you read recipes and you try recipes and you like new restaurants and you pin recipes and you eat food and like food and talk about food and it's so exciting to you. Or maybe it's family, your kids, your grandkids or career, nothing more exciting to you than what you're doing for work. And for sure, having mentioned all of that, not disparaging any of it, not preaching against any of it. Uh, God has given us all these things as gifts and they are meant to be enjoyed as a blessing from God. Say amen to that, please. They are meant to be enjoyed by God. But I would like to say to us as the followers of Jesus Christ that there ought to be something a little bit more eternal that really fires us up. There ought to be something that we're just that much more fervent about than all of these other things. I would hope that as the followers of Jesus Christ, the thing that revs us up the most is him. That we're fervent for him, that we're fervent for Jesus Christ and fervent for the things of his kingdom more than anything else. And so let's spend some time today talking about fervency, intense passion, enthusiasm, the burning desire of your heart, zeal. That's fervency. And we're going to do so by looking at the life of another everyday hero. Her name is Hannah, and she was so fervent for the Lord, even in the face of crushing disappointment in her life. And as I said, her story is in the first part of 1 Samuel, these first two chapters. Uh, let me read these for us, and then we're going to see how fervency for the Lord flows in our lives. Uh, so this is 1 Samuel 1 and 2. And uh, as we look at this, we're just going to work through the passage as we kind of work through the message. Fervency for the Lord flows, first of all, it flows from four things. But first of all, let's start with this. Uh, your perspective of the Lord. Your perspective of the Lord. I was engaging this week on a, a blog post that I had read. Somebody on staff had sent it to me and I read it and it kind of worked me up a little bit. And um, there's almost, can we just acknowledge, there's almost no profit in engaging with people in the comments section of blogs. There's almost no profit in that. Could you just nod your head and agree with me on that? There's almost no profit in it. And, but I, 
you know, lost my head and decided that I would engage on this blog with some people who describe themselves as recovering evangelicals. As if being an evangelical, which is what we are, uh, being an evangelical is some kind of disease or addiction that one must recover from. And um, they aren't fussy, as you can imagine. Their big kind of thing was absolute truth, that there are some things in life that are just true. And they see things uh, far more uh, relative than we would. And um, the truth of the matter is that if you believe that there are some absolute truths, that there are some solid, unalterable things uh, that we should believe and that are worth dying for, which I would think that a, a majority of us in this room would kind of live there, that we would know not everything, but there are certain things that are just unalterable truths. And we believe them and we would give our lives for those things. Uh, but then there are some people who believe that truth is just far more uh, fluid. And, and whether you believe one way or in another, could we agree right now that that's going to affect your view of God? What you believe about God is going to be informed by what you believe about truth. The starting point for everything, in other words, is your theology. That's the starting point for everything. Every other ology is going to flow from um, your, your belief about God, that's theology, the study of God. Establish that, and then all the other ologies that flow out from that. Anthropology, the study of man. Sociology, the study of relationships. Cosmology, the study of the universe. Every other ology is going to flow out from that. If you start with the other studies, if you start with, I'm going to start with relationships, then relationships become sovereign. They become the most important thing. And God becomes, your theology becomes subservient to maintaining relationships. If you believe that cosmology comes first, then science becomes king. Everything that you discover about uh, the known universe, uh, anything that you can prove empirically, uh, then informs what you believe about God. Because you put cosmology first. If you put anthropology first, then man becomes the measure of all things. And God becomes measured by what you believe about yourself and about humanity in general. You got it? I mean, that's... That's a basic foundation. We have to sort out first what we believe about God. When we do that, my understanding of the universe, my understanding of relationships, my understanding of humanity, all falls into place in perfect order because I've acknowledged, first of all, who God is, and I've declared that to be an unalterable truth. And so our perspective of God is so important, and Hannah's perspective of God is clear by what we see about her just in the first eight verses of our passage. Let me read some of this. Um, we learn that there's a man, his name is Elkanah, um, verse 2, he had two wives. What the Bible records, it does not necessarily condone. Right? You got it? The man had two wives. What the Bible records, it does not necessarily condone. The name of one was Hannah. The name of the other was uh, Paniah. And Paniah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now, this man used to go up year by year. You could write the word pain beside that. That's a heartache, a deep one. Now, this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, uh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were priests of the Lord on the day. This is all predating Jerusalem as the capital. David is a king. It's all before all of that. It's before Saul is king. The nation is very new at this point. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peniah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because... Uh, such a gem, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept, would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than 10 sons? There's several things we can note from these early verses about Hannah's perspective of God. The first is this, is that she's bearing this painful burden of being infertile. Just as some couples here have borne that burden either in the past or currently. It's a painful, painful thing. Whatever brand of pain God has you going through, it's not to be minimized. But sorting that out, um, 
understanding why you're going through it is all going to depend on your perspective of God. You can allow your pain to define God, or you can let God define your pain. But it will be one or the other. We're experiencing the effects of sin in this world. It's horrible. It's tragic. Every one of us in this room will go through or have gone through, or will go through again, or are going through now, the painful effects of a sin-tainted world. You can allow your pain to define God, or you can let God define your pain. So that's number one, really, under this perspective of God. She's bearing the painful burden of being infertile. Secondly, her family is one, and this is kind of so important to see her family is one that takes their faith in God so seriously. I mean, Elkanah was leading his family well and taking them to worship and bringing sacrifices. And this is a time of really at the tail end of the times of the judges where every man did what was right in his own eyes. And people weren't really that fired up or fervent about the Lord. But Elkanah and his family were. We learned that from these verses. Third, we learned this back to the issue of her infertility. Uh, we notice in verse five now. The Lord had closed her womb. This was a deliberate act of God. I mean, the people that sometimes, I want to unpack this a little bit. The people who sometimes shake their fist at God and, and, and say, like, blame him for what's going on in their life. Don't stop them necessarily from doing that because they may in fact not be wrong. Sometimes we want to more sensitively... Describe what God is doing by, well, God, God allows this. God allows this. God permitted it to happen. And certainly sometimes that's true. And the evil one is the one who's bringing on the hardship in our lives. But sometimes it's God himself who has picked this, ordained this for a purpose in our lives. Harsh? I think that's harsh. I think it's so hard to understand why God would even do that. But he has his purposes. This was a deliberate act of God. This is a revealing moment in God's word as we discover that he's actually willing to admit that he's behind the trials that we face. I mean, we've sung about, we constantly talk about a God who is sovereign and almighty and in charge of everything and nothing escapes his eye. Do we not sing and worship of this God? And mostly when we're looking at that, we're thinking about rescue and salvation and how he provides for us and all the good things that God pours out. But if he's sovereign over all the good stuff, he's sovereign over all the bad stuff too. If he's in control of all the blessings that come my way, then he must surely be in control of all the hardships that come my way as well. He is, after all, a sovereign God in control of all things. And so really it just comes down to, if I'm trying to get a great perspective on God, and I understand that he can allow these things in my life, deliberately cause them to happen, her infertility was the result of what God did. He was the one who had closed her womb then really I can decide what's my reaction going to be. Am I going to be angry at God? I am really, really mad at you, Lord. And that causes this bitterness uh, to develop in us and can over time create this distancing between myself and God because I don't want to accept the fact that he's caused this in my life. I don't like the choice that he made for me. It's anger and bitterness is not leading to a good place. Or secondly, maybe, maybe we just resign ourselves to it and we've got this kind of whole defeatist thing. We're not really angry, we're just beaten. And instead of walking through life with our heads up because he is the lifter of our heads, instead of walking through life, accomplishing the thing that God wants us to accomplish on this mission, we're just like, oh, hum, and oh, it's so hard, and life is always tough, and God is against me, and I'm not mad at him. I'm just living this resigned life, devoid of the strength and power that God offers to me through his Holy Spirit. Or acceptance. Whatever you choose for me, Lord. That's it. I may not like it. It may not be easy. My life might be really hard. 
I'd change things if I could. But I'm going to accept the fact that you chose this for me. And I'm going to live fervently for you no matter what. That's my perspective on what you're doing. You have the whole picture, God. You see the whole thing. I can only see right now. I can see where I've been and I can see where I am right now. I have no clue what's going to happen five minutes from now. But God, but God, you can. So I'm going to accept whatever, you, whatever you've chosen for me. Even something as painful as infertility. And we see that certainly in Hannah. Get perspective on God and you'll get perspective on your pain. Another thing we see in these verses, her infertility is made worse by this polygamous situation. And the other wife, it even sounds weird to say, being a complete idiot about it. Wasn't the word I wanted to use. Wasn't the word that originally appeared in the manuscript, but I thought better. It's just not easy to endure suffering when the Lord has picked this for you. But then when you have people around you chirping you and telling you you're, you're being stupid for your reaction or, 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 or making the whole thing just more painful than it already is. And people can say so many things that are just not helpful at all. And this is an ignorant and idiotic woman. And uh, we can be surrounded by that, but we can't allow that. We can't allow what people around us are saying to skew our perspective of God. Our eyes stay fixed on Jesus Christ. Amen. What he wants for us. I'm not listening to the idiotic people around me. And then I would just say this. Finally, she had a loving, godly husband who did everything he could to console her in verse eight. And I would just say this, that his leadership must surely have helped her. Not that she couldn't have arrived at this on her own. But in marriage, when husbands and wives are in sync and believe the same things about the Lord and have their hearts set on the same things together, the same mission, the same driving desire, that will create a fervency in the home that is unstoppable in the hands of the Lord. The home becomes a place of fervent worship of the Lord. Fervency for the Lord, it flows from your perspective of God. What do you believe about him? Is your theology straight? Is it allowing you to see everything else in the way that you ought to? And then flowing out of that, having established that, I know who God is. I know what he's about. I know what he's doing in my life. Then fervency of the Lord also flows from, secondly, notice this, your pattern of prayer. Like what William Law has said here, he who has learned to pray has learned the greatest secret of a holy and happy life. I think most of you have come here today, whatever other reasons you might have had for coming here today. I think you've come because you want, you might have said it in a different way, but you want a holy and a happy life. I mean, if you're sick of your sin... Sick of your sin? Any people here sick of your sin? I'm not sick of my sin. Disgust me. I want a holy life. I would love it if I didn't ever have to go to the Lord again and say, please forgive me. I would love it if I never had to go to another person and take responsibility for something stupid I've done. I would love that. I would love to be free of the darkness of my own heart and the fleeting thoughts and the actions that take me down a road where I'm not in sync with the Lord. I would love to be free of that, wouldn't you? I want holiness. And I've come here again today, as many of you have, in a desperate attempt to take one more step so that I could be more like Jesus Christ. That's what I'm going after. I want to know the secret of a holy and happy life. I I want to be happy. I I want to be joyful. I want to be satisfied. I want fulfillment. We all want that. We look for it in all kinds of different places. I'm glad you're here today. This is where we ought to be looking for it in his word. I want holiness. I want happiness. And I think that you want it too. Now the secret to that, notice what William Law says. What's the secret to it? What does he say? It's prayer. 
It's not the literal prayer. It's not the words that are coming out of our mouths. It's, it's the relationship that's developed with our God, the intimacy of knowing the Lord and being able to speak to him. That's what law is talking about. And we have every indication in verses 9 through 18 that Hannah learned the greatest secret. She learned what, what William Law is talking about here. Pick it up at verse 9. After they had eaten and drunk at Shiloh, Hannah rose and Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. She's really speaking there of a Nazarite vow of giving him a fully and completely into the service of the Lord. We see in Hannah's situation this desire for a holy and happy life, but not one that's completely without pain. Not one that is devoid of, of grief in her life. In no way are the scriptures advocating some kind of slap happy Christian life that denies the awful truth about what life is really like. Nor do the scriptures ever stop us in any way from being, bringing genuine, real hurts to the Lord, of pouring out our hearts to Him, what it says here, weeping bitterly before Him, in deep sorrow and grief. Verse 10, she was deeply distressed. She wept bitterly. She was pleading with God. She, she even, the text tells us, she even bargained with Him. God, if, if you do this for me, I will do this for you. How many of us have ever prayed that prayer, right? That is like one of the most common prayers ever. Lord, rescue me from this situation and dot, dot, dot. Insert your commitment to him. That's what she's doing. I love that God hears that prayer, by the way. Even in, in our ignorance and in our zeal to have our prayer answered, it might be done in the moment and might not be well thought out, but God is gracious toward us. She's so fervent in her prayer. She put it all out there. She says, give me a son. Give me a son. Answer my prayer. And I'll give him back to you. Not, not, not give him back in the sense that when we do child dedications up here, the parents come up. Imagine if this happened here. The parents come up and they got their little baby and Mike's up here doing the whole dedication thing. And then when the dedication's over, they leave and Mike's still holding the baby. That's what Hannah's doing. She's not taking the baby back with her to finish raising this child and to enjoy everything that comes with parenthood of seeing a child grow up into adulthood and all the fulfillment and joy that comes with that. She's going to have this baby if God grants her prayer and she's going to take the baby to the tabernacle to this guy, Eli, and she's going to leave the baby with Eli. That's fervent. That's committed. That's passion. In contrast to, by the way, the man that she's going to leave him with, you see in verses 12 through 18, she continued praying before the Lord. Eli observed her mouth. That's just weird. For verse, verse 13, Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli, being a priest, being the guy who's supposed to lead the nation in prayer and worship, so he would recognize it when he sees it, correct? Took her to be a drunk woman. I don't know if that happened a lot at the temple. It doesn't happen a lot here at Harvest. I don't know what was going on there. Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? He then confronts her. Put away your wine from you. Hannah answered so, so respectfully. 
of a man who at this point, I'm just thinking, he doesn't really deserve the respect. But she's so respectful toward him. No, my Lord, I'm, I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as, wor- as a worthless woman, for all along I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered. All of a sudden he finds himself solid leader go in peace and the god of israel grant your petition that you have made to him now in god's grace the lord's actually speaking prophetically through eli i love that god uses people who are absolute train wrecks that's what you see going on here and she said let your servant find favor in your eyes and the woman went her way and and ate her face was no longer her face was no longer sad Hannah's prayer is so bold. I mean, she, she calls the Lord, the Lord of hosts. She cries out to the Lord who is the Almighty, the King of all the armies. And she's so humble in her prayer that in contrast to that, who the Lord is and who we are, She's putting herself in a proper position three times in the prayer, referring to herself as God's servant. I serve you. I'm asking for this, but you're the almighty, you're powerful, and I am, I am only your servant. And I suppose all I can say here about this matter of prayer and Hannah's prayer, and her fervency for prayer is, do you have what she has? what she had do you have that fervency in your prayer life i mean would you say that the basis for the holiness that you have any any sense that you're really christ-like the the sense of fulfillment and satisfaction that you have in your life the happiness that god has given to you that that's really coming out of your relationship with him that's really flowing out of your prayer life and that in your prayer life, those are like the happiest, best times of your life when you're spending time with him. It's just you and the Lord. I would say this is probably the most elusive thing that we try to get our hands around. That as the followers of Jesus Christ, right now what we're talking about is the hardest of all things. To have that kind of prayer life. I mean, prayer, I think we have a pretty good prayer culture here at the church. I know it could be so much better. We want to be a praying church, not just a church that prays. But praying is the hardest thing we do. And yet it is the secret to this holiness and happiness that we're going after. And I believe that Hannah was on top of that. Do you have a growing, fervent prayer life? Do you have a time and place? A place where you're uninterrupted, a, a time that's set for you, hopefully on a daily basis where you're really pouring yourself out to the Lord. It's just, just you and him. If you're struggling with that, set a time, set a place, get a pattern going. You say, I don't know what to say. Start journaling your prayers. If that's helpful to you, write them down. Start really thinking about the words that you're saying to the Lord. Make it far more than just a list. For me, the list of things I have to pray for is not even close to being the primary thing that happens in prayer. I paragraph out, I write out to the Lord in my journal what's really going on in my heart. I talk mostly about my relationship with him. And then in my journal, after that, I'll say, I'm also praying for, and I'll list things that are going on. I read through lists of prayer, prayers that come in from you and pray through those things. It's not my primary, most vital time of prayer. That has to be far more personal, more than a list. This to be regular, a time and place. It needs to be conversational. It needs to continue beyond that specific time and place to, to being an everyday, all day. I'm just talking to the Lord and seeing him do things in my life. That's the fervency that Hannah had and that we should have. And, and coming out of prayer, we could also talk about our passion for worship. What about your passion for worship? Verse 19 Again, we'd already seen earlier in, in chapter 1 that they had this pattern of, of worshiping the Lord every year. 
uh, for this special festival time, but uh, clearly they would have been worshipers in their home. Verse 19, they rose early in the morning, worshiped before the Lord. They went back to their house at Ramah. Elkanah knew his wife. The Lord remembered her. The passion for worship. Hannah and Elkanah worshiped the Lord. That was their habit. It wasn't ritualistic, but genuinely flowed from their heart. It's made so much clearer when you hear what Hannah says in her prayer, which is also, it's a prayer of worship. It could be a song in chapter 2. So we're going to skip over that and come back to these other verses. Chapter 2, Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. These are very personal expressions of unashamed adoration of the Lord. The focus is entirely through the whole thing on the Lord and and not on her. The worship is not about her. The worship isn't even about the son that she's going to be given. The focus is entirely and completely on the Lord. It's vertical in every way. She says, verse 1, it's my heart, my strength, my mouth, I rejoice, all directed towards the Lord. Every bit of who she is. I'm reminded, Jesus said, you know, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I I just pictured here, Hannah just in some way in this first verse of her song, really just trying to pour herself every fiber of who she is in praise and exaltation to the Lord. worshiping him from her heart this was about the power of god in her life and giving him the credit i've said this already twice before this is the third message in this series our temptation could be to look at these verses to study these characters and to see in them this hero thing that we want to see and simply study their lives and say this is what hannah was and this is the character she showed and this is how we ought to emulate her life But we have said and made it very clear here, I've made it very clear that the hero of every story is Jesus Christ. And that every one of these heroes, Hosea two weeks ago, Rahab last week, as we look at Hannah today, every one of them would point us to the Lord. They'd point us to Yahweh and say, he's the hero, not me. Worship is all for her, for God. The work that he was doing in her life. This isn't a TED talk about great people and the example they set for us. This is the worship of the Lord of glory. Hannah prays. She worships. There is no, there is none holy like the Lord, verse 2. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. I'll read it again. More of you can join in. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. And she goes on to say in verses 3 through 5 that it can't be about you. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. Don't think that you can do this. It's foolish to think that you have enough strength in you to survive whatever you're going through, to make it through. For the Lord is a God of knowledge. By him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread. They're so desperate, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren is born seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. See, God is your strength. He's the one who provides. All good things come from the Lord. Verse 6, through At the end, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and rises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. And on he goes. He will guard the feet of the faithful ones. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. It's the Lord. It's all the Lord. How's your fervency in worshiping him? Hannah prays and worships his holiness, his uniqueness, his unparalleled power. 
These are all things that she affirmed and celebrated just as we've sought to do this morning in what we've done here. We've sought to lift high the name of Jesus Christ in worship. I pray that that's been on your heart as we've been singing these songs. Our fervent belief is that truth plays out every Sunday as we gather here to worship together and to be the church, to pray together. Hannah's worship here is coming out of a miraculous answer to prayer. We look back at verse 20, we see what really went on here. Actually, a little bit back into verse 9, Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife. The Bible is a little PG here. You know what's going on, right? Yeah, you got it? I don't want to create any problems for parents and kids who might be in the room right now. You can go home later and explain what it means when Elkanah knew his wife. And the Lord remembered her, and in due time, let's say nine months, of course, this is before the conception, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. Elkanah and Hannah did the husband and wife thing. God heard their prayer. The moral of this story, the lesson of this sermon is not do all of these things exactly the way Hannah did and he will answer your precise prayer the way you think it ought to be answered. This is not in any sense a prosperity gospel, a name it and claim it kind of message, that nonsense. This isn't like if I just line up all the ducks in a row and then ask God for something, I'm going to get it. I'm thinking of Job here. Job 121, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. You want to finish it with me? Blessed be the name of the Lord. You see, we worship, he's worshiping. Blessed be the name of the Lord, he's worshiping as Hannah was. He's worshiping no matter what God decides. If God gives me, If God blesses me, if God answers my prayer, blessed be the name of the Lord. If God takes from me, he doesn't answer my prayer the way I think he ought to answer it. And life is still hard at the other side of that. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I worship him no matter what. And I see in Hannah before and after a deep, fervent love for her God. No matter what he had in store for her before she had the child, before he answered the prayer, she worshipped him. After she had the child, received the blessing, God heard her prayer, she worshipped him. She was fervent for the Lord no matter what, she worshipped him. Do you have that kind of fervency in your heart for the Lord? I mean, are you here out of routine this morning? Is this just something that's, that's one among many options that you could have done on a Sunday morning? Did you come because you looked out the window and you saw that it was raining? You can't do anything else on a, on a, on a Sunday that it's raining? So you came? Or are you the person who is like, of course this is what I'm doing and I've been waiting all week for this and there's just a, such a, a welling up in my heart. I've got to be with God's people. I can't wait for the service to start. And when it's over, it's painful to think that it's going to be seven days before we can do this together again. That's fervency. Engaging while you're here, longing for it when you're not. And loving the Lord, I pray that that would be increasingly true for us. And you worship this morning like you really believe this, that you are fervent for the Lord. And I thank God for that. All right, ready for the last one? It's been easy up till now. This is the hard one. Fervency for the Lord flows from your priorities in giving. This is a touchy subject. I know that. I know that. And uh, I know that there's going to be some of you who are going to do this for the next five or ten minutes. La, 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 la. You're going to do that, Okay. And I get that there might be some people here who are visiting from another church. And if you're visiting from another church and um, that church is fervent for the Lord, they love the Lord and they're passionate for the things of Christ and his word. If that's the kind of church you go to, 
and um, you are not giving in the way that you ought to give, then I'm telling you straight up, go back to your church and give the way you should give. Your pastor can send me a thank you note later. Make your priorities in giving consistent with the word of God. Go back and bless your church. Um, if you're a guest here today and uh, Jesus is not your thing, but you found your way to our doors today, if Jesus is not your thing, if worship is not regular for you, if you're not part of a church, you're just checking all of this out, if you're thinking pastors always talk about money, see, I told you, I came, he talked about money. I told you the person that invited you is cringing right now. I get it. Um, it's not true, by the way. We don't always talk about money, but sometimes we do. Jesus didn't always talk about money, but sometimes he did. The word of God doesn't always talk about money, but sometimes it does. And so that's why we talk about it when it comes up. We do verse by verse through. We try to study the Bible faithfully, and when it's there, it's there. But if you're not a believer, if you don't love Jesus, I'm just going to give you a pass right now and tell you this isn't for you. The, f- the first thing that I want to talk to you about is not your money. I'd love to talk to you about the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, but for now, if you want to tune out for a little while and get your smartphone out and do something else, play a game of solitaire or something, go right ahead. I'm going to talk to some believers right now. I want to talk to the folks that are from Harvest and you're part of this community. I want you to listen up. And some of you get this so well already. And this is in many ways a generous church. But beginning at verse 21, we see that Hannah brings an offering. She receives this son, Samuel. She asked for him. God heard her prayer and answered. The man Elkanah, verse 21, and all his house went up to offer the Lord a yearly sacrifice. They're going back again and to pay his vow. Hannah did not go up for she said to her husband, as soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Probably around the age of three. Right. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. In other words, um, he's gently reminding his wife that she made a vow. She prayed the prayer, give me the son. I'll give him back to you. And uh, Elkanah wants to make sure that she keeps her word. Just reminding her. There's no indication here that she wasn't going to fulfill it. So the woman remained and nursed her son until uh, she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull. Uh, Some uh, manuscripts there actually, or the reading of the Hebrew, probably means better three bulls. Not a three-year-old, but she brought three. An ephah of flour, skin of wine, and she uh, brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh, and the child was young. Are you feeling this a little bit, moms? They slaughtered the bull. They brought the child to Eli. And she said, oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. She's going to leave this kid with Eli. Talk about trusting the Lord, right? For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. I'm, I'm giving him back. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he, that is Samuel, uh, worshipped the Lord there. She brings an offering out of sheer gratitude to the Lord. She's bringing the boy, but besides bringing the boy, which seems like a pretty colossal offering, true or false? It's pretty massive what she's doing here. But besides bringing the boy, she brings this other offering. And what it amounts to, it's pretty significant. It's not the regular offering that was prescribed Uh, by the law, but she actually brings every indication here. She brings three times what she was required to bring. Likely out of this unbelievable, um, overflowing gratitude that she had in her heart to the Lord. It was generous. It was willing. It's a true offering. It's not out of obligation. She didn't feel like she was forced to do it or had to do it, but it was out of her love for God. I think about what Hannah is giving here, and I I think about Mary because there's echoes with Mary, the mother of Jesus. So many parallels. In fact, if you take Hannah's song that we just looked at in chapter 2 and you compare it to Mary's song in Luke's gospel, you're going to see some striking parallels between the two. 
Mary also gave an offering. She gave up her son, God's son, to the mission that God had ordained for her, and it was painful. You see that repeatedly through the Gospels. By the way, I I can only tell you from what I've read, I don't understand it fully. Though I know my mother's heart for my brother who's lost and doesn't know the Lord. I've witnessed the, the pain of mothers who have lost children. I only know what I've experienced through watching others or what I've read, that there's nothing like a mother's love for her children. There's nothing like it. You have Mary and Hannah, both of them, offering their children as an offering to God. It's striking. There's a bond between mothers and children. I've I've also read, never experienced this, and I thank God for that, but in battle when a man is dying, that he cries out for his mother, not his girlfriend, not his wife. There's a bond between mother and child. It's inexplicable in many ways. The sacrifice that Hannah was making here, that Mary made as well in giving up each of their sons, is beyond what most of us could ever understand. In some ways, Samuel here is prefiguring Jesus himself. Samuel's life being given in service to the King of Kings. Jesus Christ himself as the King of Kings, giving his life for us. Both of these mothers had to look past the pain and the sorrow to see God's plan in it all. Both of them experienced a miraculous moving of God. The priority for them was to give whatever was necessary for the mission. Mary's words, let it be to me according to your word. I accept whatever you send my way. They gave so much of themselves that I don't think any of us could ever get to the place where we would think that whatever offering we bring would ever be enough. Well, I serve this much and I give this and I, this is what my offering was and, and I think that's enough. Even when we're being generous, even when we're pouring it all out, which isn't even feasible, and we still have to run our homes and we still have to have some money to to live on. But even when we do that, even if we were to give it all, even if we were to completely cash out, it wouldn't be enough. So we could never get to the place where we're actually settled with what we're giving. I mean, I wonder if our gifts really are, as I think about this. Just some words I thought about that really describe proper biblical giving. Are our gifts generous? I could have used the word sacrificial there. Are they generous and sacrificial gifts? I mean, you just have to think back about 45 minutes to when we took the offering. Just think about that offering. Was it generous? Was it sacrificial? Was it heartfelt? Did you do it because you felt you had to? Or was it genuinely flowing out of your deep abiding love for the Lord? Do you, do you give it thinking, I could have done something else with that money? It needs to be heartfelt, not out of obligation. Willing is another word. Flowing from the heart, not coerced in any way. Is it joyfully given? I'm I'm happy about it. I love the fact that I get to give. Do you have it on your heart that it's such a joyful experience that you realize you could probably increase your joy by increasing your offering and you would really want to do that? Is it a genuine act of worship of the Lord? I mean, if we really boil this whole message down, if we were to say, what's the most important thing of all the things that we've talked about here? If we were to try to find one specific litmus test 
on fervency. What really measures fervency? This is what we would find. What do you spend your money on? How much do you give back to the Lord? These are the words of Jesus, Matthew 6, 21. Where your treasure is, there your heart is also. If you really want to be fervent for the Lord, if you really want to be passionate for the Lord, if you want to be fired up about Him and demonstrate your enthusiasm to Him, it's measured by wherever you're spending your money and whatever you're giving to Him. So, I mean, all the other stuff we've talked about, getting your right perspective of God, having a vibrant, fervent prayer life, having a fervent, passionate worship life, all of these other things, by the way, I just don't think you can pray and worship and not be generous. Your prayer and your worship will be so hindered by your inability to actually give your offering. That's why this is the final word. This is the litmus test. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Hannah had it. Fervent in every respect, passionate for the Lord. And in that way, truly heroic. An everyday hero, just like you and me. Facing disappointment, facing heartache, and just simply praying, worshiping, and giving to the Lord. Something worth chasing down, don't you think? Let's pray together. We'll worship. Father, thank you uh, for the time, again, that we've had here today. And uh, again, a hard word from you, not one that's easy to hear. uh, One that no doubt will challenge some people in this room. The kind of message where people might even be thinking up objections to those things, Father. And in all of those ways that we uh, quietly rebel against you and, and, and chafe against your authority in our life, God, I pray that uh, you would break those things down in us and your Holy Spirit would do something in this room, in each person's life, that would bring the maximum glory to you. Father, I pray for those in the room who are desiring right now to have an increased fervency for the Lord. Father, that you would hear their prayer. For those that are experiencing some of the same kind of hardship that Hannah's experiencing. God, I pray that you would hear those prayers. God, that you would answer in a way that would honor you and would bless those who are praying. Father, thank you for your patience with us and for your grace poured out in our lives. We pray these things now in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. We always love hearing about the work God's doing in our listeners. If God's been doing a work in you, send us an email at info at And remember, you are loved.